From gold explorer to mine developer, we are well-funded. Located in stable eastern Canada, the Magino Gold Project has a robust production profile of 250,000 ounces a year. Strong project economics with a $939 million NPV. Total gold production is projected to be over 2.6 million ounces with an estimated mine life of 11 years. Drilling is underway and the scope of the project continues to grow. Please visit our website, www.prodigygold.com and read more. Prodigy Gold, today's discovery, tomorrow's future. Are you looking for a junior gold company that will give you upside exposure to major gold discovery potential, cash flow, and is located in a secure jurisdiction? Goldrich offers you a unique opportunity and controls almost the entire historic Chandelar Mining District, located in the prolific Ambler Schist Belt in Alaska. The company is applying modern-day techniques to explore the district that previously hosted four hard rock gold mines and various placer operations. Visit Goldrich on the web at www.goldrichmining.com or look us up under the ticker symbol GRMC. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, uh, and I want to thank our sponsors for this uh, second hour for making this show economically viable. Uh, they are our sponsors uh, for this hour are Arroway Energy, Clifton Star Resources, Gold Rich Mining Company, and Prodigy Gold. I am really pleased to have with me for the first time Naomi Oreskes. Uh, she is a professor of history and science studies at the University of California, San Diego, an adjunct uh, professor of geosciences at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and an internationally renowned historian of science and, she, and uh, author. She started her career as a geologist, uh, received her uh, B.S. Uh, from the Royal School of Mines, Imperial College, London, and then worked for three years as an exploration geologist in the Australian outback. In 1990, she received an interdisciplinary Ph.D. in geological research and history uh, of science from Stanford University. Uh, Professor Ruskus uh, has lectured widely in diverse venues and has won numerous prizes, including most recently the uh, 2011 Climate Change Communicator of the Year. More recently, she has primarily been interested in the problem of anthropogenic uh, climate change. Her opinion pieces have appeared in the uh, Times uh, of London, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and elsewhere. Welcome, Naomi, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks very much. Really great to have you, and I must say uh, you're here on this show in no small part because of a good friend of mine, Brent Cook, who was on this show, a fellow geologist of yours, uh, I guess a friend or someone that you know, 
And uh, Brent came on and wanted to talk about the issue of global warming in part, in addition to other investment ideas that he has, uh, because in, in no small part because we had another person, Bob Hoy, on this show who takes uh, the other side of this issue, believing that uh, – that global warming is not uh, caused by human beings, but rather caused uh, by natural, uh, by, by natural geological and I suppose uh, solar uh, causes. So we want to get into uh, asking you about those issues, and, and there's so much to talk about. I doubt we'll have time to even get close to talking to, uh, to you about everything we want to uh, talk about. Uh, <clears throat> certainly, there are political issues that um, and political forces that are that are really forming a lot of the opinion here, and what we want to do today in the short amount of time that we have is to try to cut to the chase and understand the truth about the science behind this issue of global warming. Um, so maybe we could just start out with a simple question. What evidence is there that global warming is taking place in the first place? Well, there's a huge amount of evidence. I sometimes like to flip that question around and say, what is there evidence that it's not caused by humans? And the answer mm -hmm. to that question is a whole lot simpler. The simple answer is none. There is no good scientific evidence to tell us that climate change, as it's happening right now, is not happening or not, not caused primarily by greenhouse gases and deforestation. The scientific evidence for climate change is overwhelming. That's how I got involved in this issue in the first place. Mm -hmm. I am not an environmental activist. I'm a historian of science and, as you said, a geologist historian. And I got involved in this issue because I was interested in science. I was interested in the question of how scientists judge data and how they decide mm -hmm. that we know something about the natural world. And so I started looking at the climate change issue and was really stunned because like a lot of people, probably like yourself and many of your listeners, I did think that this was a big scientific debate because that's how it was being presented in the news media. But when I actually started researching and investigating, what I realized was it's not a scientific debate at all. It's a political debate and an economic debate because, as you said, there are some really gigantic political, economic, and social issues mm -hmm. that swirl around the question of climate change and what it means and what we could or should or might do about it. But it's not a scientific debate. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, we had Bob Hoy on this show. As I mentioned, uh, he is a person who believes that uh, global warming is not caused by, by humans but is uh, caused by natural factors. Uh, and he points out... Uh, and maybe you agree or disagree, I want to find out, that if we go way back in history, uh, geological times, long before human beings even appeared on Earth, that we had periods of time in geological history when the Earth's atmosphere was much, much warmer than it is now. Is, is that something you're in agreement with? Absolutely. We know there's been lots of climate change throughout history, but we also know that during many of those previous periods, well, actually all of those previous periods, there were no human beings. <laughs> there were dinosaurs. And we also know that many previous species went extinct because of climatic change. So absolutely, we know there's been climatic change, but that doesn't mean it's a good thing, for one thing. And it also doesn't mean that the climatic change happening now is natural. Lot, I mean, if I get angry, there could be 59 different reasons why I get angry, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm happy, there could be 101 reasons I'm happy. So part of why we do scientific research on these questions is to say, yes, we know there are many potential causes of climate change, including natural fluctuations in the climatic system, changes in solar radiation, changes in the orbit of the Earth around the sun, changes in the distribution of land and sea that can alter the climate. We know all those things can change the climate, and we know that some of them have changed the climate in the past, mm -hmm. but that's not the question. The question is, 
what is changing the climate now and what evidence do we have for that? And there the evidence is very clear because we have an enormous amount of data from NASA. My co-author in my book project, Merchants of Doubt, is a historian at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, part of NASA. And one of the contributions that Eric Conway brought to this project was his own analysis of the NASA research or his own you know, reading of the literature, the scientific literature. Satellite data shows very, very clearly that there's been no increase in solar radiation in the last 30 to 40 years during which we've seen this big run-up in carbon dioxide. So we know that carbon dioxide has increased, and we also know that solar radiation has not. And since those are the two main driving forces of climate change, well, that tells us it can't be the sun. The other potential driving force are changes in the Earth's orbit. That's pretty well understood scientifically, but the time scale for that is all wrong to explain what we're seeing now. Changes in the Earth's climate, such as the ones that Bob Hoy was probably referring to in the past that are related to changes in the orbit, those take place on the course of, they take thousands, tens of thousands, or even of millions of years to unfold. We're looking at climate change that is happening now on the scale of decades, visible climate change that you and I and lots of other people have seen. And, and I think the fact that somebody like Bob Hoy would say, well, yes, he accepts there's climate change, he just thinks it's natural, is really actually very, very important. Because maybe 30 years ago, people who were skeptical about climate change denied that it was even happening. Now they say, well, it's happening, but I think it's natural. But here's the thing. Why have they made that shift? Well, they've made that shift because we see it. We all know the climate is changing. Any of us who are over 50, you know, anyone who's lived in the country, farmers in Kansas, we're all seeing climate change. The guys who tap maple syrup in New Hampshire where I used to live, you know, they're seeing climate change. Fishermen are seeing climate change. So we're all seeing it. So we all know what's happening. So the question is what's causing it. And for that, we have to turn to science because we as individuals, you know, as geologists living today or businessmen or media people or radio hosts, we can't analyze the long-term data that tells us what the causes are, and that's what we turn to the scientific community for, just as we turn to scientists for information about medicine or any other topic. Mm -hmm. I failed to mention, uh, Naomi, uh, Merchants of Doubt. I would highly recommend to our listeners that you pick up a copy of this book. It's an excellent uh, read, not just about global warming, but about uh, the people uh, that are behind a lot of the propaganda that we get and that has caused this to be a political discussion rather than a scientific discussion. So I would like to go uh, to, your, to, to talk a little bit about that book. You, uh, you talked about a very courageous individual, a scientist named Ben Santer, um, and <clears throat> you talked about, uh, it, it seems to me, that he was a very, very courageous person who was vilified uh, for doing good science, um, and you talk about something he called fingerprinting, or something that is known as fingerprinting. You explain what is meant by fingerprinting as it applies to Dr. Santer's work. Would you care to share that with our listeners? Yeah, definitely. Thanks for asking about that. And as you say, it's a really important story. We begin the book with the story of Ben Santer because we thought it was such an important story because it is, as you say, it's really a shocking story. So Ben Santer is a scientist, a climate modeler who works for the U.S. government, for the uh, um, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which is also the place where the hydrogen bomb was first built. So this is a place filled with scientists who are very dedicated to serving our country. Um, and Ben did a crucial piece of work going back almost 20 years ago now in the early 1990s. And it is, as you said, it's what he and others call fingerprinting. So as I said before, we know there are many different possible causes of climate change. So one of the things that objective scientists do is they say, well, okay, given that, 
what do we know about these different possible causes? What do we know about ways in which the climate change would be maybe a little different if it was caused by the sun versus if it was caused by changes in the Earth's mm -hmm. orbit or caused by greenhouse gases? And so Ben posed that really important, rigorous scientific question. And he said, well, there is something we know. We know that if the changes were being caused by the sun, we would expect the entire atmosphere of the Earth to warm up because the whole atmosphere is penetrated by sunlight, by solar radiation. But if it's caused by greenhouse gases, then we expect something different because greenhouse gases trap heat in the lower part of the atmosphere, the troposphere, mm -hmm. and they don't allow that heat to reach the upper portion or the stratosphere. And so he reasoned that if greenhouse gases were the true cause, then you ought to see a difference in the temperature between the troposphere and the stratosphere. You ought to see the troposphere warming up, but the stratosphere staying the same or even possibly cooling off a little bit as all this heat gets trapped in the lower part of the atmosphere. And so he took satellite data, satellite measurements, mostly collected by NASA, so the data were collected completely independently, uh, and then analyzed them to ask the question, well, is the troposphere warming and is the stratosphere you know, warming, cooling, or staying the same? And the answer was it was exactly what you would expect if it's caused by greenhouse gases. The troposphere was warming. The stratosphere is actually cooling off a little bit. And that cannot be explained by solar radiation. So that, combined with the direct measurements of solar radiation that we also have, this two, in a sense, independent confirmations, those, that's really the crucial evidence that tells us that this is not being caused by the sun. Mm-hmm. Fascinating, uh, really fascinating stuff. Uh, well, there. So what? So it's carbon dioxide is really carbon dioxide emissions, I guess. And, and carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, including methane. But CO two is the biggest one, but methane is also significant. Yeah, methane gas and and black carbon, uh, something else that I I've, I've heard mentioned uh, as a pollutant that that causes a lot of trouble. And I, I want to ask you about those uh, in a minute or two, if we can get to it. Um, but with respect to um, what what are then the human activities that are leading to the carbon dioxide emissions primarily? What are they? Well, the biggest one, the elephant in the room, is burning fossil fuels. Because when you burn a fossil fuel, coal, oil, conventional natural gas, unconventional natural gas, natural gas, it produces carbon, and that carbon combines with oxygen in the atmosphere to produce carbon dioxide. And that's basic high school chemistry. And that's the other important piece of the story that when I lecture in public, people often, you know, nod their heads like they get it. Scientists have known this for 150 years. This is very old news scientifically because it is basic high school chemistry. So there's just no getting around that when you burn fossil fuels, you produce carbon dioxide. And we've known also since the 19th century that carbon dioxide was a heat-trapping gas, what scientists mm -hmm. call a greenhouse gas. So none of this is controversial science. What makes this controversial is the cause, is the fact that it's caused by burning fossil fuels, because as you and all your listeners know, burning fossil fuels is, if we take away the carbon dioxide piece of it, the pollution piece, it's a good thing, right? The prosperity mm -hmm. of our life, our whole lifestyle, the prosperous, comfortable, good life that we all live is really hinged on this key thing, which is that we learned how to tap the energy that was stored in fossil fuels. And there's unbelievable amounts of energy in oil and gas. They're very convenient fuels to use. Um, apart from the CO2 piece, oil and gas are actually not really all that polluting. Coal is much worse. So the shift to oil and gas from coal was a good thing by and large. So this is really where we get into the whole realm of political, economic, 
an actually kind of emotional conflict because we have this basically good thing, energy. Uh, it gives us a good life, and we're all happy and we all want it, whether we're liberals, conservatives, libertarians, whatever, we all want to live a good life. Mm-hmm. But now we've learned, we've understood that this good life has caused a problem, and that's what the political debate is really all about. It's about what do we do about the problem. And so what we show in our book is that, well, a couple of things. Getting back to Ben Sander, what we show in our book is that people have blamed the messenger. Rather than saying, oh, wow, okay, this actually is kind of a serious problem. We should roll up our sleeves and figure out what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas my friend Brent Cook, who you mentioned, likes to say to me, what you need to tell people, Naomi, is this problem is real, so how are you going to make money fixing it? Right? Yeah. That would be a good business-based you know, response, but that's not what happened. And this is a way... It's almost a kind of tragedy, really. What happened instead, starting about 20 years ago, in the book we, we show, well, it's actually more than 20 years, but we show how instead of accepting the scientific evidence and rolling up our sleeves and figuring out what to do about it, a whole sector of American society went into denial, started saying, no, it's not true, we don't believe it, uh, Ben Sander is lying, and the worst part of it is that Ben became, was attacked. Ben became the target of a very systematic kind of ruthless and really unprincipled attack in which people accused him of being a fraudulent science, accused him of scientific misconduct. There was never a shred of evidence that Ben had done anything wrong, that he had done anything but tell the truth about his data and what the data show. And for that, he became the target of a really, really unprincipled attack that was not not by scientists, but by people... Well, let me say this, not by climate scientists. They mm-hmm. did include some scientists, but they were mostly sure. uh, physicists, but by people who had links, in many cases, to the fossil fuel industry and in some cases to the tobacco industry. Mm-hmm. And this attack was carried out not in the scientific literature, but in the pages of mainstream media, particularly and unfortunately, sadly, in the pages of business uh, newspapers like the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. business magazines like Fortune and Forbes, so it gave the business community the impression that there was a big scientific debate going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, in my opinion, really misled you know, honest businessmen and honest people who read the Wall Street Journal to think that there was this big scientific debate going on, when what it really was was a politically-based attack. Mm-hmm. Well, while we're talking about energy uh, as the cause of carbon dioxide emissions, you mentioned coal is probably the worst uh, oil, somewhat better, I would gather. Natural gas is is perhaps the least polluting of those uh, energy sources. Well, you know, it's really, really tricky. So people always like to say the science is really complicated, and one of the things I like to say is actually a lot of the science is not that complicated. The basic story of carbon dioxide to greenhouse gas, like I just said, it's actually pretty simple. But when we get into this question of which of the various fuels are better or worse, then it does actually become rather complicated mm-hmm. because coal is the worst fuel in that it's the most polluting all, all overall, it's the most dangerous to mine. You know, I've been inside coal mines. They're not mm-hmm. really nice places, <laughs> like no. black lung disease. I mean, we're all familiar with all of the terrible health and environmental issues surrounding coal. But here's the interesting complication. You mentioned black carbon a minute ago. Yeah. So coal burning produces a lot of dust, a lot of mm-hmm. soot. We all know about soot, mm-hmm. uh, black carbon. And it turns out that the dominant effect of those other pollutants from coal is actually to cool the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a little-known fact. It doesn't mean I'm defending the coal industry, but we want to tell the truth about all these things, right? Mm-hmm. We don't want to sugarcoat it. So the reality is that coal, although it's very, very polluting and does produce more carbon dioxide per BTU than oil and gas, it also produces these other pollutants that have a cooling effect. Scientists call that the masking effect. 
because it turns out that the global warming that we've seen so far today would actually be worse. It would be about 50% worse, like mm. half again as much, if it weren't for the cooling effect of dust and other pollutants mm. in the atmosphere that come from burning coal, but also um, in the third world where people burn wood and also where people burn dung. And is, that, a, yeah. is, is that because it, it reflects the energy from the sun? Basically, yeah, exactly. It's called, they call it a masking effect. It basically is reflecting energy. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a little more complicated, but that's close enough. So the interesting thing about this is that when people tell you that gas is better than coal and we should shift to gas as a solution for climate change, mm-hmm. that's actually not really true. Mm-hmm. So what's really true is that every fuel has some good things and some bad things about it, but if we're going to solve the problem of climate change in the long run, the long run solution is that we have to stop burning fossil fuels. And that's a painful conclusion, especially if you work in the fossil fuel industry. And I still have a lot of good friends in the oil and gas industry, and we talk about this all the time. And there's smart and courageous people inside the industry who recognize this and are saying it in private. One of my closest friends in the world, unfortunately, died a couple of years ago, but was working for British Gas, was doing a lot of work inside British Gas to educate people about this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but So we know that inside the oil and gas industry, there's a lot of people who understand this, but of course, you know, if you if your business is oil and gas, well, then you have you know you have a pretty serious problem, right? Yeah, and if you have invested a lot of money in those sectors as well, I suppose, although there are ways of getting out and, and moving on to other sectors. So, if we can't do fossil fuels, then what about nuclear? Well, you know, nuclear. My view is that we need to have a very open discussion about all the non-fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, options. And I used to work in uranium exploration, so I'm not anti-nuclear. I think there's, personally, I think there's a place for nuclear in the portfolio, but I don't think it's a panacea for a variety of different reasons, you know, much of, many of which have to do with safety issues. Obviously, we saw in Fukushima, even the Japanese engineers, you know, uh, had some problems there. So, you know, there's a lot of complicated issues surrounding nuclear power, but my, my view is that this is a very large problem. I don't think it's going to be solved with just one thing. So I think everything needs to be on the table. And I think, you know, as far as the evidence goes, the most likely solution is going to be a portfolio of energy solutions that are going to include gas for a while as we transition into a new set of energy sources, mostly renewables, mostly solar and wind, but also possibly biomass, particularly algal biomass. There's a lot of interest in the business mm-hmm. community. Boeing is doing a lot of research and investment. And the Air Force is extremely interested in algae biofuels. They're actually testing some prototype mm-hmm. uh, algae biofuels even as we speak. So biofuels are potentially really, really helpful. And that's a place that the oil and gas industry could potentially diversify into because some of their technology could be transferable to that. But, again, I'm not an expert on that, so mm-hmm. I don't want to you know, go into too much details. Uh, but, you know, wind, solar, biomass, and maybe some nuclear, those things together, and maybe even some new things we haven't thought of yet, I think together those things can probably get us the energy that we need for the future. Mm-hmm. Because what and you hear... Sorry, to add also an efficiency, of course. There's lots of good studies that show we could probably use about 30% less energy just through efficiency, uh, what Amory Levins calls megawatts, you know, negative watts. He's got a great new book called Reinventing Fire where he talks about all these things in great detail. And, again, there's money to be made in energy efficiency, but it will probably be made by different people than the oil and gas industry unless the oil and gas industry begins to take efficiency really seriously. And, again, some sectors of the industry are but there are other sectors that are, are in, you know, still resisting. 
Mm-hmm. Well, the criticism that we always hear about renewable, renewables, of course, is that it can never, it can never really reach the levels of energy that we are requiring, that a modern society requires. But I guess what you're saying is that that may be a self-serving argument by the status quo, perhaps. And in fact, uh, we're not we're not keeping an open mind. We're not perhaps encouraging or allowing even. Um, if, if we subsidize the status quo in one way or another, and I happen to believe that our military efforts overseas may be somewhat directed in that, uh, maybe. Really, I'm shocked that. that you would say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we we have a lot of interesting people on this show, and uh, and I have to believe that there's an element of that. It certainly is self-serving, whether or not it's a, cons- a conspiracy or not. I think people tend to do what uh, what they see in their best interest in the short term, at least, if not longer term. Well, of but, course, uh, and that's you know, and that's totally understandable. But I think you're right, and I'm sure your audience are pretty skeptical and critical people. So, which is good. So they, so a good question to ask is, who is it who's telling us that solar and wind aren't really practicable? And if you scratch the surface, what you see is that a lot of the anti-renewable messages are sadly coming out of the oil and gas industry. So recently, there was a pretty big anti-wind campaign that we know was funded by the gas industry, and that's in my opinion, really sad, right, because there's a place for gas in the portfolio as we move forward, but I think there's a bigger place for wind, and we don't, it doesn't serve the American people if the industry, you know, spreads misinformation about wind power. In Denmark right now, 20% of all uh, their electricity is coming from wind. They're exporting wind to other parts of Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's not a panacea. Wind alone won't solve all of our problems, but 20% is a big chunk. If we could reduce our energy by 30%, through efficiency and 20% through wind, well, then we're halfway there. Well, Naomi, that, that sounds really great uh, to the extent it is scientifically and economically possible. I, I guess that's probably a topic we'll have to reserve for another day. But uh, we do have to take a short commercial break right now, and when we come back, I'd like to ask you to talk a bit more about who the merchants of doubt are and perhaps speculate a bit on what their motivation might be. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with Naomi Oreskes. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to underlying problems. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to triple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. 
At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, we're back with Naomi Oreskes, and we've been discussing with her the issue of global warming, whether or not it is man-made or or not, and Naomi has offered some, some good evidence. I believe that uh, in the affirmative that human beings have, in fact, been responsible for the very rapid rise in the atmospheric temperature. Now, she also offered some possible solutions, the details of using wind as well as other various renewable sources of energy, along with improving or increased efficiencies in the use of fossil fuels. Well, those are all very complex topics, uh, which are beyond the scope of today's discussion. I do hope that we can talk to Naomi sometime in the future or with other scientists who are more specifically geared towards uh, various uh, towards various technologies. What's really interesting in Merchants of Doubt, I think, is not is is sort of the bigger picture of who it is behind the powers behind the throne that are really sort of controlling the discussion and the propaganda. And uh, I wouldn't mind if you'd take just a few minutes that we have, of time that we have left to talk a little bit about who some of the players are and have been. You talk a lot about the cigarette industry, but a lot of other industries, too, where people scientists very well-known famous scientists have come out really to sort of poison the atmosphere in a way literally and figuratively but uh, keeping truth from the American people would you care to talk just a little bit about about who some of those people are that you mentioned? yes definitely thanks for asking so so that's exactly right and and it's part of the reason we wrote the book in a way the book is a mystery story because it evolved a mystery to us which was that when we actually scratched the surface starting with the story of Ben Sander, who was attacking him and why. And, and you know, I had met Ben Sander. He's an incredibly nice guy besides being mm-hmm. a great scientist. It was just weird to think that anybody would do this. And especially, why are these attacks running in the Wall Street Journal? I mean, what does the Wall Street Journal know about mm-hmm. the troposphere, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. what we found was that the attacks were led by three physicists. And they were all physicists who had built their careers not working on climate or atmospheric science, but building the weapons and rocketry systems that the United States used to fight the Cold War. So they had worked on the atomic bomb, they'd worked on the hydrogen bomb, they'd worked in the early days of the rocketry and satellite programs. They were all brilliant people, very, very successful scientists, but none of them had any real experience doing work in climate science. But there was more. What we also found was that they didn't just poison the well of climate science, then in fact, 
they had done the same thing repeatedly over the course of more than 20, 30 years. Uh, they had also tried to poison the scientific well regarding the evidence of acid rain. Mm. They had done the same thing regarding the evidence of the ozone hole. They had done the same thing regarding the debates over nuclear winter and the possible efficacy of strategic defense. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of the eureka moment. They had done the same thing with respect to tobacco. And they had actually worked, two of the four main characters in our book had actually worked with the tobacco industry to challenge the scientific evidence of the harms of tobacco, to claim we didn't really know and that there was a big scientific debate. Now, nowadays, there's almost no one left in America who would think that that would be a credible thing to say. Mm-hmm. We pretty much all accept that tobacco is pretty dangerous. Um, so the fact that they would have said the same thing about tobacco smoke, that was a pretty big red flag for us. And the fact that they had this pattern, we call them serial contrarians, you know, issue after issue after issue, always saying that we don't really know, always attacking the science. Well, that was a red flag to us that this was not a scientific debate because no scientist could even possibly be an expert on all of those issues. So even if we would grant them that maybe they were right about you know, let's say the ozone hole, it just wasn't plausible that they were really experts on all these other issues as well, especially tobacco, which is so different, requires a whole, you know, entirely different realm of expertise than, say, climate change. So then we started looking at, well, why? Why are they doing this and who is helping them? Who's funding this? And so what we found was that they really were driven by political ideology. And this was sort of interesting because when we started this work, most people assumed that we were going to be telling a story of corporate greed. They assumed that this was going to be all a smokescreen for ExxonMobil. And that turned out actually not to be the story. It's much more interesting and complicated than that. Hmm. And this is why I really hope that you know, your readers will buy and read the book, because I think it's really thought-provoking, um, particularly for people who do believe in the free market and want to have a principled and defensible defense of the free market, but not a defense of the free market that's based on you know, lies, right? So what we found was that because of their experience in the Cold War, all of these men were very, very powerful advocates of the free market, of laissez-faire economics. They were deeply anti-communist, and they were fearful almost to the point, I think we could say, of paranoia of the communist threat. And particularly later in their lives, they began to see reds under the bed everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they particularly began to see reds under the bed in environmentalism and environmental science. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of your listeners will probably be, you know, maybe even somewhat sympathetic to this. There is a, a large kind of rhetoric out there that accuses environmentalists of being socialists. Sure. And one of the things we try to point out in the book is, well, you know, that's not actually true. The roots of the environmental movement, the American environmental movement was started by Teddy Roosevelt and John Rockefeller. Uh, John D. Rockefeller, in most people's view, is, is not exactly a socialist, right? right. <laughs> so, um. so it's kind of irrational. It's not based on facts, but it was based on a kind of anxiety that came out of the Cold War and that they continue to fight even after the Cold War is over. And so what you see is that their initial funding does not actually come from the fossil fuel industry, but it comes from the tobacco industry because the tobacco industry is very, very interested in attacking the government and especially in attacking regulation in order to prevent regulation of tobacco. Mm -hmm. And so then the tobacco industry begins to make common cause with other regulated industries and with think tanks that support free market economics. Mm-hmm. So you get a kind of, well, what I would call politics making strange bedfellows because you get principled defenders of the free market who then ally themselves with what I would call unprincipled attacks on science. Um, but they do it in the name of defending the free market. And, of mm-hmm. course, there's a lot of contradictions and ironies in this story, but the one that I think is most important to point out when we're talking about climate change 
and, and you alluded to it a few minutes ago, is that the energy market is not a free market. In fact, there are massive, massive subsidies to oil, gas, and coal in the world. The World Bank did a major study a couple of years ago in which they estimated that global subsidies to um, fossil fuel production, just the production piece alone, are over $700 billion every year. So that's not a free market by any stretch of the imagination, and that doesn't even include what you alluded to, which are the hidden subsidies, you know, that could be related to other things like the military maintenance of infrastructure, you know, railroads, the transport coal. So $700 billion is a minimum low-value number for how much oil, gas, and coal are subsidized in the world mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Well, getting back to some of these uh, main characters, there are four in your book, uh, Two really big ones and two somewhat smaller ones, but very important people that had access to presidents and people very, very high up in our government. Do you think they really believed that they were right about the science, or do you think they they knew that they were wrong but felt that the ends justified the means? Yeah, that's a great question. Of course, we struggle with that a lot because it's always interesting to think about what people really believe. And, of course, at the end of the day, you know, none of us really know what other people really believe, not even our spouses, right? <laughs> but, but, but I think what we concluded towards in the book was two things. Um, we think that, I, I think, I think Eric Conway would agree with this, that a big part of this is a kind of ends justifying means, that they really do believe that regulation and interference in the free market is a bad thing, just flat out that it's a bad thing, and therefore that one should argue in all cases against any position that would lead to government intervention. And that's the common theme that unites all these different activities. So I think the fact that they move through so many different areas of science and politics, that's a kind of prima facie argument that it's about preventing intervention in the marketplace. And there are places where they say that explicitly, too. I mean, we're not just inventing this. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they say that they don't want government intervention. They don't want government telling us what to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the biggest driver. But I also think, and, and again, we have some data on this. We found some letters where they do talk about this. Um, it's a mix about what they really believed about the science. I know for a fact, based on you know things that we found, uh, that Bill Nirenberg, who is you know one of the big players in this story, he he knew that acid rain you know was caused by uh, air pollution and that it was doing damage. And there's one place when we end the book with this, where Bill himself wrote in a letter. You just know in your heart that you can't throw billions of tons of sulfates into the atmosphere and not expect some impact, right? Mm-hmm. So he knew that. But what I think he also believed, and I think this probably applies for the others as well, is that he thought it was being exaggerated. He thought it was being overplayed by environmentalists who wanted to push a regulatory agenda. And, again, this is where it gets difficult and subtle. You know, he might not have been totally wrong about that. There probably are some environmentalists who do exaggerate some threats. But here's the key thing, I think, for your listeners. Just because some environmentalists somewhere exaggerate some threat doesn't mean the science is wrong. Right. right? Well, well, that, that, for me, is kind of the key thing, that we have, to, we have to look at the science, we have to see what it says, and then we, if we don't like what environmentalists are proposing as solutions, then it's up to us to say, well, I don't want a communist solution, but here's a market-based mechanism that mm-hmm. could be a solution. And, of course, that is, this is the other really key thing that a lot of people don't seem to know, that's what we did for acid rain. In the first Bush administration, President Bush signed the Clean Air Act amendments, which instituted an emissions trading program for the air pollution that caused acid rain. So it was a market-based mechanism, and it worked. Mm-hmm. And that was what was proposed for carbon dioxide last year, but that's what was rejected by the U.S. Congress um, today. And 
it's one of the paradoxes to me that honestly I don't really understand. Maybe we can have another show and talk about this. Mm-hmm. Why Republicans have turned against emissions trading? Because it actually was a Republican idea. It was mm-hmm. put forward by Republican econ- economists as a way to harness the power of the marketplace and not have to have a heavy-handed government intervention. Mm-hmm. And it worked. So we do have a model for market-based mechanisms, and my view is that that's a model that we should be drawing on now for climate change. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly seems reasonable to me. As a person who really does want to see limited government, I am sympathetic to a lot of the, the ideologies that you talk about that have been uh, sort of uh, powering this this uh, delusion, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also you know, like to suggest that that is the stuff from which dictatorships are made of, uh, ideologies that that ignore reality, ignore science, and I think that's not what we want to do. That's not what I want to do. I think that's what, not what most people want to do. Well, that's I think most people too. Right. Most people really want the the truth, and I think that's why people should really take a look, not take a look, buy Merchants of Doubt. It is a it <laughs> is a you. fabulous read. I read it on parts of it on my way back from Phoenix this past uh, weekend. Uh, and and uh, it's just a, a matter of time to have to go through it entirely. But it's just it, it is really an interesting read because it's not heavy in science. It's hardly I mean it's just really basically science. The science that's in there is for lay people like myself. Exactly. And uh, and so it's an easy read. And your background as a historian also comes into play here very very well. I think and you're obviously your your uh, your co-editor co co-writer here, Eric Conway. Uh, ads, the two of you just put together a very, very fascinating book. How can people uh, follow up on your work, Naomi? Uh, well, as you said, they can buy the book, of course, which is available on all major online booksellers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those good places. Um, you know, Eric and I are continuing to write on the subject, and, you know, if you Google us, you can find our other articles and works. Uh, we're hoping to make a film of the book, so good. if that happens, hopefully people will go out and see it. Um, and we're just trying to continue to talk about the issue, and we're working, Eric and I are working now on a proposal for a follow-up book that would look more closely at some of these questions we've just been discussing about the solutions. How do we transition in an orderly fashion into a non-carbon-based economy, and how do we do it in a way that still preserves individual liberty and freedom? Because I agree with you completely. We don't, neither Eric nor I want to see a heavy-handed intervention here. And, you know, again, one of the things we point out in the book, another irony, my view is that if we don't act relatively soon while there's still time for an orderly transition, it actually increases the odds of some kind of heavy-handed government intervention. Sure. So the very thing that these folks would least like to see happen, mm-hmm. I think they actually increase the, the odds that that might happen. And if you think about what some of the impacts of climate change are, like extreme weather events, flooding, hurricanes, uh, droughts, I mean, when, do we, when have we had to call on the National Guard in the United States? when there have been very bad hurricanes, catastrophic flooding. So the kinds of impacts that may occur, crop shortages, maybe food riots in some parts of the world, these are the kinds of things that lead to dictatorship, as you said, along with rigid ideological thinking. So if we care about freedom and liberty, we ought to be really rolling up our sleeves and figuring out how to fix this project. The longer we stay in denial about it, the more the odds are that we're going to get an outcome that we actually don't want. Well, I think you make a very, very good point. Um, for sure on that on that issue, um, definitely. And uh, I do hope people will go out and buy this book, and I do hope that you'll make a movie out of this because <laughs> I think it would be a fascinating movie. There's a lot of material here that that would really um, that would really I think lend itself to to a fantastic movie. So I hope you 
go through with that, and we'll look forward to your next book as well, Naomi. Great. Thank Thanks you. so much. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's it's really been a wonderful discussion, and I think an eye-opener, I hope, for our listeners as well. Thank you very much. Folks, don't thank go away. You. We'll be right back uh, with our next guest. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Um, well, I'm going to uh, wrap this up myself today because uh, we only have a few more minutes left. Um, I would like to just comment briefly on uh, the discussions that we had uh, today with uh, Mikey Weinstein uh, and Naomi, Naomi Oreskes. Uh, I think that both of these people provide uh, some insights into issues that are counter to my own intuition and my own belief. I think it's it's healthy sometimes to uh, to allow yourself to be challenged uh, and to listen to people that sometimes um, have views that are different than yours. It's not always pleasant. We don't always like to hear that, but uh, it, it can be for our own good. With respect to Mikey Weinstein's uh, uh, talks about what's going on in the, uh, in the military religious uh, freedom organization and what is going on in the, uh, in the military, I think this is most disconcerting. In fact, uh, the, the fact that, uh, that many of these um, fundamentalist Christians are uh, turning against their other their brothers uh, and sisters in the military because they are not Christian enough uh, sounds to me like one of the most anti-Christian views that one can take because uh, at least the part of Christianity that I come from says that none of us can measure up uh, to be good enough to be the perfect Christian. So, uh, and forgiveness is such a part of the Christian religion that, uh, to me, uh, I find this most disconcerting and troubling. And I applaud Mikey Weinstein's efforts uh, to try to shed light on, on what I think is a very poisonous, 
diseased attitude about people that don't measure up, and uh, both inside the military and also the notion of uh, killing a Muslim for Christ is just counter counter to everything that I believe uh, is taught in Christianity. So I applaud Mikey Weinstein for his work. Uh, with respect to Naomi Ariskis' views on the, on the um, global warming issue, certainly this is a hot topic, and it's one that uh, I'm sure many listeners to this show are not going to be happy about. I'm frankly not happy about it. I would rather not believe that uh, global warming is, um, uh, is a man-made uh, problem, because if it is, then there's something we can do, and if it is, that invites government, more government regulation and so forth. Uh, this is why I think it's so important, though, to know the truth. Because obviously, if it is man-made, then and it is, and if it does lead to uh, potentially catastrophic problems, then I think it's something that people do need to find a solution to. And if, in fact, that is the truth, then why not go about a market resolution as the Republicans uh, earlier had tried to do? Um, but then it's also very important that we know that it is true, uh, if it is true, uh, because. Um, uh, we don't want to invite more government regulation. Lord knows there's enough of that already. I do believe very, very much in free markets, that uh, free market capitalism is the best way to go to allocate scarce resources and to uh, optimize our living standards and also uh, the, the most uh, optimal way to uh, to guarantee freedom and liberty. Very, very important um, issues. So it's it's really important to get this right. And I'm not saying that I'm absolutely convinced that uh, in Naomi's arguments, I, for example, here at the conference in New York, mentioned her views, and one geologist said, "But has she really considered a geothermal activity that may be responsible for global warming?" And you know, this is one topic we didn't talk about with Naomi, but I certainly uh, expect to bring it up with her again sometime in the future. We want to look at, um, uh, with respect to democracy or our republic, it was uh, Thomas Jefferson that said the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, and I think Americans are not vigilant enough. We want to look, uh, we want to have a good time, we want to have uh, a party on, and not really spend the hard work and effort to try to get to the truth. We're, con- we're content to allow people in the media to tell us what the truth is, uh, and that can be a very, very dangerous situation with respect to investing. Also, we need to be on guard with respect to our views about the future. Sometimes it's easy, I know, and I'm speaking for myself, from my own point of view, to uh, bet the market based on my ideological views. And one of the reasons I think Chen Lin has been so successful is he's been uh, above that. But in any event, this is very important that we keep an open mind about everything. Uh, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, I want to tell you that next week my guest is going to be Thomas Greco, who's written a book called The End of Money and the Future of Civilization. It's going to be a fascinating talk. You're not going to want to miss that. I want to thank Tacey Trump. My producer, Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making the show logistically possible. And thanks to each of you for listening, making us the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Till next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.